Book Two, Chapter Fourteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Fourteen. Catherine stopped beside the drawing room window with a start, caught by something she saw outside. It was nothing, however, but the figure of Rose and Langham strolling round the garden. A bystander would have been puzzled by the sudden knitting of Catherine's brows over it. Rose held a red parasol, which gleamed against the trees. Dandy leapt about her, but she was too busy talking to take much notice of him. Talking, chattering, to that cold cynic of a man, for whom only yesterday she had scarcely had a civil word. Catherine felt herself a prey to all sorts of vague, unreasonable alarms. Robert had said to her the night before, with an odd look, "'Wifey, when I came in I found Langham and Rose had been spending the evening together in the study.' and I don't know when I have seen Langham so brilliant or so alive as in our smoking talk just now." Catherine had laughed him to scorn, but all the same she had been a little longer going to sleep than usual. She felt herself almost as much as ever the guardian of her sisters, and the old sensitive nerve was set quivering. And now there could be no question about it. Rose had changed her ground towards Mr. Langham altogether. Her manner at breakfast was evidence enough of it. Catherine's self-torturing mind leapt on for an instant to all sorts of horrors. That man! And she and Robert responsible to her mother and her dead father? Never! Then she scolded herself back to common sense. Rose and he had discovered a common subject in music and musicians. That would be quite enough to account for the newborn friendship on Rose's part. And in five more days, the limit of Langham's stay, nothing very dreadful could happen, argued the reserved Catherine. But she was uneasy, and after a bit, as that tete-a-tete in the garden still went on, she could not, for the life of her, help interfering. She strolled out to meet them with some woollen stuff hanging over her arm, and made a plaintive and smiling appeal to Rose to come and help her with some preparations for a mother's meeting to be held that afternoon. Rose, who was supposed by the family to be taking care of her sister at a critical time, had a moment's prick of conscience, and went off with a good grace. Langham felt vaguely that he owed Mrs. Ellesmere another grudge, but he resigned himself and took out a cigarette, wherewith to console himself for the loss of his companion. Presently, as he stood for a moment turning over some new books on the drawing-room table, Rose came in. She held an armful of blue serge, and, going up to a table in the window, she took from it a little work-case, and was about to vanish again when Langham went up to her. "'You look intolerably busy,' he said to her discontentedly. Six dresses, ten cloaks, eight petticoats to cut out by luncheon-time,' she answered demurely, with a countenance of most Dorcas-like seriousness, "'and if I spore them I should have to pay for the stuff.' He shrugged his shoulders and looked at her, smiling, still master of himself and of his words. "'And no music? None at all? Perhaps you don't know that I too can accompany?' "'You play?' she exclaimed, incredulous. "'Try me.' The light of his fine black eyes seemed to encompass her. She moved backward a little, shaking her head. "'Not this morning,' she said. "'Oh, dear, no, not this morning. I'm afraid you don't know anything about tacking or fixing or the abominable time they take. Well, it could hardly be expected. There is nothing in the world,' and she shook her surge vindictively, "'that I hate so much.' "'And not this afternoon, for Robert and I go fishing. But this evening,' he said, detaining her. She nodded lightly, dropped her lovely eyes with a sudden embarrassment and went away with lightning quickness. 
A minute or two later, Ellesmere laid a hand on his friend's shoulder. "'Come and see the hall, old fellow. It would be our last chance, for the squire and his sister come back this afternoon. I must parochialise a bit afterwards, but you shan't be much victimised.' Langham submitted, and they sallied forth. It was a soft, rainy morning, one of the first heralds of autumn. Grey mists were drifting silently across the woods and the wide stubbles of the now-shaven cornfield, where white lines of reapers were at work as the morning cleared, making and stacking the sheaves. After a stormy night the garden was strewn with debris, and here and there noiseless prophetic showers of leaves were dropping on the lawn. Ellesmere took his guest along a bit of common, where great black junipers stood up like magnets in council above the motley undergrowth of fern and heather, and then they turned into the park. A great stretch of dimpled land it was, falling softly towards the south and west, bounded by a shining, twisted river, and commanding from all its highest points a heathery world of distance, now turned a stormy purple under the drooping fringes of the rain-clouds. They walked downwards for the moment of entering it, till at last, when they reached a wooded plateau about a hundred feet above the river, the house itself came suddenly into view. That was a house of houses! The large main building, as distinguished from the lower stone portions to the north, which represent a fragment of the older Elizabethan house, had been in its day the crown and boast of Jacobean house architecture. It was fretted and jewelled with Renaissance terracotta work from end to end. Each gable had its lace-work, each window its carved setting. And yet the lines of the whole were so noble, genius had hit the general proportion so finely, that no effect of stateliness or grandeur had been missed through all the accumulation of ornament. Majestic relic of a vanished England, the house rose amid the August woods rich in every beauty that sight and wealth and centuries could give to it. The river ran about it as though it loved it, the cedars, which had kept it company for well-nigh two centuries, gathered proudly round it. The deer grouped themselves in the park beneath it, as though they were conscious elements in a great whole of loveliness. The two friends were admitted by a housemaid who happened to be busy in the hall, and whose red cheeks and general breathlessness bore witness to the energy of the storm of preparation now sweeping through the house. The famous hall to which Ellesmere at once drew Langham's attention was, however, in no way remarkable for size or height. It told comparatively little of seigneurial dignity, but it was as though generation after generation had employed upon its perfecting the craft of its most delicate fingers, the love of its most fanciful and ingenious spirits. Overhead, the stucco-work ceiling, covered with stags and birds and strange heraldic creatures unknown to science, had the deep, creamy tint, the consistency and surface of antique ivory. From the white and gilt frieze beneath, untouched, so Robert explained, since the Jacobean days when it was first executed, hung Renaissance tapestries which would have made the heart's delight of any romantic child, so rich they were, in groves of marvellous trees, hung with red and golden fruits, in far-reaching palaces and rock-built citadels, in flying shepherdesses and pursuing shepherds. Between the tapestries, again, there were breadths of carved panelling, crowded with all things round and sweet, with fruits and flowers and strange musical instruments, with flying cherubs and fair faces and laurel-wreathed medallions, while in the middle of the wall a great oriel window broke the dim venerable surfaces of wood and tapestry with stretches of jewelled light. Tables crowded with antiques, with Tanagra figures or Greek vases, with Florentine bronzes or specimens of the willful vivacious wood-carving of seventeenth-century Spain, stood scattered on the Persian carpets.
and to complete the whole, the gardeners had just been at work on the corners of the hall and of the great window, so that the hard-won subtleties of man's bygone handiwork, with which the splendid room was encrusted from top to bottom, were masked and relieved here and there by the careless easy splendour of flowers, which had but to bloom in order to eclipse them all. Robert was at home in the great pile, where for many months he had gone freely in and out on his way to the library, and the housekeeper only met him to make an apology for her working dress, and to hand over to him the keys of the library bookcases, with a fretful comment that seemed to have in it the ghostly voice of generations of housemaids. "'Hold oh, Lord, sir, they are a trouble, them books!' From the drawing-rooms, full of a more modern and less poetical magnificence, where Langham turned restless and refractory, Ellesmere, with a smile, took his guest silently back into the hall, and opened a carved door behind a curtain. Passing through, they found themselves in a long passage lighted by small windows on the left-hand side. "'This passage, please notice,' said Robert, "'leads to nothing but the wing containing the library, or rather libraries, which is the oldest part of the house. I always enter it with a kind of pleasing awe. Consider these carpets which keep out every sound, and look how everything gets older as we go on.' For halfway down the passage the ceiling seemed to descend upon their heads. The flooring became uneven, and woodwork and walls showed that they had passed from the Jacobean house into the much older Tudor building. Presently Robert led the way up a few shallow steps, pushed open a heavy door, also covered by curtains, and bade his companion enter. They found themselves in a low, immense room, running at right angles to the passage they had just quitted. The long diamond-paned window, filling almost half of the opposite wall, faced the door by which they had come in. The heavy carved mantelpiece was to their right. An open door on their left, closed at present by tapestry hangings, seemed to lead into yet other rooms. The walls of this one were completely covered from floor to ceiling with latticed bookcases, enclosed throughout in a frame of oak carved in light classical relief by what appeared to be a French hand of the sixteenth century. The chequered bindings of the books, in which the creamy tints of vellum predominated, lined the whole surface of the wall with a delicate sobriety of colour. Over the mantelpiece, the picture of the founder of the house, a Holbein portrait, glorious in red robes and fur and golden necklace, seemed to gather up and give voice to all the dignity and impressiveness of the room beneath him, while on the window-side the book-lined wall was, as it were, replaced by the wooden face of a hill clothed in dark lines of trimmed yews, which rose abruptly about a hundred yards from the house, and overshadowed the whole library wing. Between the window and the hill, however, was a small old English garden, closely hedged round with yew hedges, and blazing now with every flower that an English August knows, the sunflowers, tiger-lilies, and dahlias white and red. The window was low, so that the flowers seemed to be actually in the room, challenging the pale tints of the books, the tawny browns and blues of the Persian carpet, and the scarlet splendours of the courtier over the mantelpiece. The room was lit up, besides, by a few gleaming casts from the antique, by the Diane Chasseresse of the Louvre, by the Hermes of Praxiteles smiling with immortal kindness on the child enthroned upon his arm, and by a Donatello figure of a woman in marble, its subtle sweet austerity contrasting with the Greek frankness and blitheness of its companions. Langham was penetrated at once by the smell of this strange and beautiful place. The fastidious instincts which had been half revolted by the costly accumulations, the overblown splendours of the drawing-room, were abundantly satisfied here. "'So it was here,' he said, looking round him, "'that that man wrote the idols of the market-place.' 
"'I imagine so,' said Robert. "'If so, he might well have felt a little more charity towards the human race in writing it. "'The race cannot be said to have treated him badly on the whole. "'But now look, Langham, look at these books. "'The most precious things are here.' "'And he turned the key of a particular section of the wall, "'which was not only latticed, but glazed. "'Here is a mirror for magistrates. "'Look at the title-page. "'You will find Gabriel Harvey's name on it. "'Here is a first edition of Astrophel and Stella, "'another of the Arcadia.' They may very well be presentation copies, for the Wendover of the that day is known to have been a wit and a writer. Imagine finding them in situ like this in the same room, perhaps on the same shelves as at the beginning. The other rooms on this floor have been annexed since, but this room was always a library. Langham took the volumes reverently from Robert's hands into his own, the scholar's passion hot within him. That glazed case was indeed a storehouse of treasures. Ben Johnson's Underwoods, with his own corrections, a presentation copy of Andrew Marvel's poems, with autograph notes, manuscript volumes of letters containing almost every famous name known to English literature in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the literary cream, in fact, of all the vast collection which filled the muniment room upstairs, books which had belonged to Addison, to Sir William Temple, to Swift, to Horace Walpole, the first four folios of Shakespeare, all perfect, and most of the quartos, Everything that the heart of the English collector could most desire was there. And the charm of it was that only a small proportion of these precious things represented conscious and deliberate acquisition. The great majority of them had, as it were, drifted thither, one by one, carried there by the tide of English letters as to a warm and natural resting-place. But Robert grew impatient, and hurried on his guest to other things, to the shelves of French rarities, ranging from Du Bellay's Vision, with his autograph, down to the copy of Les Mémoires d'Outre-Tombe, presented by Chateaubriand to Madame Recamier, or to a dainty manuscript volume in the fine writing of La Martine. These, Robert explained, were collected, I believe, by the squire's father. He was not in the least literary, so they say, but it has always been a point of honour to carry on the library, and as he had learnt French well in his youth, he bought French things, taking advice, but without knowing much about them, I imagine. It was in the room overhead, said Robert, laying down the book he held, and speaking in a lower key. So the old doctor of the house told me a few weeks ago that the same poor soul put an end to himself twenty years ago. What in the name of fortune did he do that for? Mania, said Robert quietly. Phew, said the other, lifting his eyebrows. Is that the skeleton in this very magnificent cupboard? It has been the Wendover scourge from the beginning, so I hear. Everyone about here, of course, explains this man's eccentricities by the family history. "'But I don't know,' said Robert, his lip hardening. "'It may be extremely convenient sometimes to have a tradition of the kind. "'A man who knew how to work it might very well enjoy all the advantages of sanity "'and the privileges of insanity at the same time. "'The poor old doctor I was telling of, old Merrick, "'who has known the squire since his boyhood and has a dog-like attachment to him, "'is always hinting at mysterious excuses. "'Whenever I let out to him, as I do sometimes, as to the state of the property, "'he talks of inherited melancholy.' rash judgments, and so forth. I like the good old soul, but I don't believe much of it. A man who is sane enough to make a great name for himself in letters is sane enough to provide his estate with a decent agent. It doesn't follow, said Langham, who was, however, so deep in a collection of Spanish romances and chronicles that the squire's mental history did not seem to make much impression upon him. Most men of letters are mad, and I should be inclined, he added, with a sudden and fretful emphasis, 
to argue much worse things for the sanity of your squire, Ellesmere, from the fact that this room is undoubtedly allowed to get damp sometimes than from any of those absurd parochial tests of yours. And he held up a couple of priceless books, of which the Spanish sheepskin bindings showed traces here and there of moisture. "'It's no use, I know, expecting you to preserve a moral sense when you get among books,' said Robert, with a shrug. "'I'll reserve my remarks on that subject. But you must really tear yourself away from this room, Langham, if you want to see the rest of the squire's quarters. Here you have what we may call the ornamental sensational part of the library, that part of it which would make a stir at Sotheby's. The working parts are all to come.' Langham reluctantly allowed himself to be dragged away. Robert held back the hangings over the doorway leading into the rest of the wing, and, passing through, they found themselves in a continuation of the library totally different in character from the magnificent room they had just left. The walls were no longer latticed and carved. They were closely packed, in the most business-like way, with books which represented the squire's own collection, and were in fact a chart of his own intellectual history. "'This is how I interpret this room,' said Robert, looking round it. Here are the books he collected at Oxford in the Tractarian movement and afterwards. Look here. And he pulled out a volume of St. Basil. Langham looked, and saw on the title page a note in faded characters. Given to me by Newman at Oxford in 1845. Ah, of course he was one of them in 45. He must have left them very soon after, said Langham, reflectively. Robert nodded. But look at them. There are the tracts, all the fathers, all the councils, and masses, as you see, of Anglican theology. Now look at the next case, nothing but eighteenth century. I see, from the fathers to the philosophers, from Hooker to Hume. How history repeats itself in the individual. And there again, said Robert, pointing to the other side of the room, are the results of his life as a German student. Germany! Ah, I remember. How long was he there? Ten years, at Berlin and Heidelberg. According to old Merrick, he buried his last chance of living like other men at Berlin. His years of extravagant labour there have left marks upon him physically that can never be effaced. But that bookcase fascinates me. Half the great names of modern thoughts are in those books. And so they were. The first Langham opened had a Latin dedication in a quavering old man's hand. Amico et discipulo meo, signed Fredericus Guglielmus Schilling. The next bore the autograph of Alexander von Humboldt, the next that of Book, the famous classic, and so on. Close by was Niebuhr's history, in the title page of which a few lines in the historian's handwriting bore witness to much pleasant discourse between the writer and Robert Wendover at Bonn in the summer of 1847. Judging from other shelves farther down, he must also have spent some time, perhaps an academic year, at Tübingen, for here were most of the early editions of the Leben Jesu, with some correction from Strauss's hand, and similar records of Bauer, Ewald, and other members or opponents of the Tübingen school. And so on, through the whole bookcase. Something of everything was there. Philosophy, theology, history, philology. The collection was a medley, and made almost a spot of disorder in the exquisite neatness and system of the vast gathering of which it formed part. Its bond of union was simply that it represented the forces of an epoch, the thoughts, the men, the occupation which had absorbed the energies of ten golden years. Every book seemed to be full of paper marks. Almost every title page was covered with minute writing, which, when examined, proved to contain a record of lectures or conversations with the author of the volume, sometimes a string of anecdotes or a short biography, 
rapidly sketched out of the fullness of personal knowledge, and often seasoned with a subtle causticity and wit. A history of modern thinking Germany, of that unextinguished hearth whence the mind of Europe had been kindled for three generations, might almost have been evolved from that bookcase and its contents alone. Langham, as he stood peering among the ugly, vilely printed German volumes, felt suddenly a kind of magnetic influence creeping over him. The room seemed instinct with a harsh, commanding presence. The history of a mind and soul was written upon the face of it. Every shelf, as it were, was an autobiographical fragment, an apologia pro vita mea. He drew away from the books at last, with the uneasy feeling of one who surprises a confidence, and looked for Robert. Robert was at the end of the room, a couple of volumes under his arm, another which he was reading in his hand. "'This is my corner,' he said, smiling and flushing a little as his friend moved up to him. "'Perhaps you don't know that I too am engaged upon a great work?' "'A great work? You?' Langham looked at his companion, as though to find out whether his remark was meant seriously, or whether he might venture to be cynical. "'Ellesmere? Writing? Why should everybody write books? It was absurd!' The scholar who knows what toll scholarship takes of life is always apt to resent the intrusion of the man of action into his domains. It looks to him like a kind of ridiculous assumption that anyone d'un coeur léger can do what has cost him his heart's blood. Robert understood something of the meaning of his tone, and replied almost apologetically. He was always singularly modest about himself on the intellectual side. "'Well, Gray is responsible.' He gave me such a homily before I left Oxford on the absolute necessity of keeping up with books that I could do nothing less than set up a subject at once. Half the day, he used to say to me, you will be king of your world. The other half, be the slave of something which will take you out of your world into the general world. And then he would quote to me that saying he was always bringing into lectures. I forget whose it is. The decisive events of the world take place in the intellect. It is the mission of books that they help one to remember it. Altogether it was striking, coming from one who has always had such a tremendous respect for practical life and work, and I was much impressed by it. So blame him. Langham was silent. Ellesmere had noticed that any allusion to Grey found Langham less and less responsive. "'Well, what is the great work?' he said at last, abruptly. "'Historical. Oh, I should have written something without Grey. I've always had a term for it since I was a child.' but he was clear that history was especially valuable, especially necessary to a clergyman. I felt he was right, entirely right. So I took my final school's history for a basis and started on the empire, especially the decay of the empire. Some day I mean to take up one of the episodes in the great birth of Europe, the makings of France, I think, most likely. It seems to lead farthest and tell most. I've been at work now nine months. And are just getting into it? Oh, just about. I've got down below the surface, and beginning to feel the joys of digging." And Robert threw back his head with one of his most brilliant, enthusiastic smiles. "'I've been shy about boring you with the thing, but the fact is I'm very keen indeed, and this library has been a godsend.' "'So I should think.' Langham sat down on one of the carved wooden stools, placed at intervals along the bookcases, and looked at his friend, his psychological curiosity rising a little. "'Tell me,' he said presently. Tell me what interests you specially. What seizes you in a subject like the making of France, for instance?" "'Do you really want to know?' said Robert, incredulously. The other nodded. Robert left his place, 
and began to walk up and down, trying to answer Langham's question, and at the same time to fix in speech a number of sentiments and impressions bred in him by the work of the past few months. After a while Langham began to see his way. Evidently the forces at the bottom of this new historical interest were precisely the same forces at work in Ellesmere's parish plans, in his sermons, in his dealings with the poor and the young, forces of imagination and sympathy. What was in chaining him to this new study was not, to begin with, that patient love of ingenious accumulation which is the learned temper proper, the temper in short of science. It was simply a passionate sense of the human problems which underline all the dry and dusty detail of history and give it tone and colour, a passionate desire to rescue something more of human life from the drowning, submerging past, to realise for himself and others the solidarity and continuity of mankind's long struggle from the beginning until now. Langham had had much experience of Ellesmere's versatility and pliancy, but he had never realised it so much as now, while he sat listening to the vivid, many-coloured speech getting quicker and quicker, and more and more telling and original, as Robert got more absorbed and excited by what he had to say. He was endeavouring to describe to Langham the sort of book he thought might be written on the rise of modern society in Gaul, dwelling first of all on the outward spectacle of the blood-stained Frankish world, as it was, say, in the days of Gregory the Great, on its savage kings, its fiendish women, its bishops and its saints, and then on the conflict of ideas going on behind all the fierce incoherence of the empire's decay, the struggle of Roman order and of German freedom, of Roman luxury and of German hardness. Above all, the war of orthodoxy and heresy, with its strange political complications. And then, discontented still, as though the heart of the matter was still untouched, he went on, restlessly wandering the while, with his long arms linked behind him, throwing out words at an object in his mind, trying to grasp and analyse that strange sense which haunts the student of Rome's decline as it once overshadowed the infancy of Europe, that sense of a slowly departing majesty, of a great presence just withdrawn and still incalculably potent, traceable throughout in that humbling consciousness of Goth or Frank, that they were but beggars hunting in a palace, the place that had harboured greater men than they. "'There is one thing,' Langham said presently, in his slow, nonchalant voice, when the tide of Robert's ardour ebbed for a moment, "'that doesn't seem to have touched you yet, but you will come to it. To my mind it makes almost the chief interest of history.' It is just this. History depends on testimony. What is the nature and the value of testimony at given times? In other words, did the man of the third century understand or report or interpret facts in the same way as the man of the sixteenth or the nineteenth? And if not, what are the differences, and what are the deductions to be made from them, if any? He fixed his keen look on Robert, who was now lounging against the books, as though his harangue had taken it out of him a little. "'Ah, well,' said the rector, smiling, "'I'm only just coming to that. "'As I told you, I'm only now beginning to dig for myself. "'Till now it has all been work at second hand. "'I've been getting a general survey of the ground "'as quickly as I could with the help of other men's labours. "'Now I must go to work inch by inch "'and find out what the ground is made of. "'I won't forget your point. "'It is enormously important, I grant.' "'Enormously,' he repeated reflectively. "'I should think it is,' said Langan to himself as he rose. "'The whole of Orthodox Christianity is in it, for instance.' There was not much more to be seen. 
A little wooden staircase led from the second library to the upper rooms, curious old rooms which had been annexed one by one as the squire wanted them, and in which there was nothing at all, neither chair, nor table, nor carpet, but books only. All the doors leading from room to room had been taken off. The old worm-eaten boards had been roughly stained. A few old French engravings had been hung there and there, where the encroaching books left an opening. But otherwise all was bare. There was a curious charm in the space and air of these empty rooms, with their lattice windows opening on to the hill, and letting in day by day the summer sun-risings, or the winter dawns, which had shone upon them for more than three centuries. "'This is my last day of privilege,' said Robert. "'Everybody is shut out when once he appears from this wing and this part of the grounds.' "'This was his father's room,' said the rector, leading the way into the last of the series. "'And through there,' pointing to a door on the right, "'lies the way to his own sleeping-room, which is, of course, connected with the more modern side of the house.' "'So this is where that old man ventured what Cato did and Addison approved,' murmured Langham, standing in the middle of the room and looking round him. This particular room was now used as a sort of lumber-place, a receptacle for the superfluous or useless books gradually thrown off by the great collection all around. There were innumerable volumes in frayed or broken bindings lying on the ground. A musty smell hung over it all. The grey light from outside, which seemed to give only an added subtlety and charm to the other portions of the ancient building through which they had been moving, seemed here triste and dreary, or Langham fancied it. He passed the threshold again with a little sigh, and saw, suddenly before him at the end of the suite of rooms, and framed in the doorways facing him, an engraving of a gros picture. A girl's face turned over her shoulder, the hair waving about her temples, the lips parted, the teeth gleaming, mirth and provocation and tender yielding in every line. Langham started, and the blood rushed to his heart. It was as though Rose herself stood there and beckoned to him. End of Book Two, Chapter Fourteen.